Well, I have to say there was a real poignancy in hearing all of you sing that beautiful hymn, All I, Everything I Have, I Give to You, and then read this gospel. Everything I have. To hear you sing that with your hearts really struck me with a poignancy because what a strange way Jesus has of inviting people to follow him. Just when a large crowd is assembled around him, just when he is becoming really popular, he presents his followers with this strange invitation, full of warnings and considerations. I mean, imagine if Martin, uh, you know, at that little beginning part, in the place where he says, welcome, blah, 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 blah. If he had said, great to have you worshiping at the table service this 18th Sunday in Pentecost, but be advised, if you decide that you would like to be a part of our community, get ready to leave everyone you love, give up all you have, and die a disgraceful, painful death. Think about this decision carefully before you put any info on that little pew card. And by the way, there will not be any parking for the next year. (laughs) It wouldn't matter how good those cookies are at coffee hour. Who would stick around? But the thing is, that is the gist of what Jesus says. He paints a daunting picture for those who are following him. Just a quick explanation about that perplexing part where he says you must hate your mother and father. That use of the word hate can be confusing. So it's worth taking time to explain that Jesus did not intend to diminish the importance of loving your parents and your wife and your family. Actually, that's one of the Ten Commandments. That word hate, miseo in Greek, which is, of course, the root of our word misanthrope, it's stylistic exaggeration. We see it in the Bible. Jesus uses this striking language to catch our attention, to emphasize how much following him might cost. It's a deliberate use of dissonance to wake us up to the real cost of discipleship. After all, many of the 12 ended up on crosses, those first followers of Jesus. It was dangerous to follow Jesus. And of course, in some countries today, it is still dangerous to follow Jesus. It is dangerous to follow Jesus in North Korea or in Afghanistan or Pakistan. This is a hard saying. It was hard then. And we wonder, if Jesus were here in the room right now, speaking into our context here in Belmede, would he say the same thing to us? The same Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who labor and carry heavy burdens, and I will refresh you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light but he's saying something different here. And on first glance, this description of the costly nature of discipleship also seems very much at odds with the reading we had from Deuteronomy. We read earlier that following God, that being obedient and walking in his ways will result 
in blessing. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you. That would be a much more inviting thing for Jesus to have said. You'll be blessed if you follow me. How can both of these two things be true? How can following God bring blessings and at the same time potentially be so terribly costly as to deprive us of the very thing we would call blessings? Well, I'm going to offer two ways to think about this apparent paradox. The first is about context. The words in Deuteronomy are spoken by Moses to the Israelites as a reminder of the covenant that they had entered into with God. And by the way, they'd already broken it several times. It was a covenant of mutual obligations. Yes, God had chosen them, but they, in turn, were to choose God's ways, and they had to obey the law in order to be blessed. And what we know is it was impossible to keep that law perfectly, Ultimately, as St. Paul says, the law served to show humanity how far away from perfection we are. It proved our weaknesses rather than our obedience. But as Christians, we live under a new covenant, one that is not secured by our law-keeping, It is secured by grace, specifically by Jesus willingly giving his life for ours so that we can live in that lovely relationship with God that is marked by favor and mercy, a life that is filled with possibility for new life and endless creativity. Mercy and forgiveness are absolutely essential for creative life and newness. It's the only way we break out of that cycle of vengeance and give opportunity for new ways of living. But this life of favor given through Jesus was never described as being trouble-free on this earth or extra comfortable or filled with material blessings. Jesus says, in this world... You're going to have trouble. To say that because we are Christ followers, we enjoy special access to a comfortable life is a distortion of the gospel. In this world, you will have trouble, says Jesus. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So already we're getting the sense of, is he, is he speaking of two things here? Two times, two realities. So the first answer to the question of why there is a dissonance between what Moses says will flow out of walking with God, material blessing, and what Jesus says we must be prepared to experience if we follow him, costly discipleship, has to do with context in the history of salvation. But secondly, part of the confusion comes from our basic misunderstanding of blessing. 
of what it means to be blessed by God. We could get caught up in thinking of blessing as being mostly about prosperity, health, and wealth. It's true that the Old Testament in particular describes the patriarchs as being blessed by lots of livestock and camels and children. But that is not the core part of the blessing. It's a tangible expression of blessing, but it's not the really important part. Getting caught up with that can lead to real theological confusion. It's like this. It's like looking at a four-year-old child on her birthday. She is surrounded by boxes, beautifully wrapped, that are all filled with various sorts of plastic stuff that at one point in her life, when she goes to college, perhaps she will finally gladly give away. What is important about the situation of that four-year-old on her birthday is the love her parents have for her and their desire and expectation for her one day to grow fully into all that she is, brave and creative and generous and mature, and their commitment out of love to nurture that in her. The important thing is not the boxes. The important thing about blessing is the status of belovedness it proclaims and ensures. There's a whole false gospel out there that says the better we are and the more God loves us, the richer we become and the healthier we are, the more boxes we have. But we know this isn't true. Life is not like a vending machine. Just because I love God does not mean my bank account will grow and I can relax and have a comfortable life. We look at the devastation of the island of Abaco by Hurricane Dorian, and we see yet again that bad things happen to all people, including good people. Now, just a little caveat aside. This is not to say that we do not see God's love in spectacular ways, in answers to prayer, physical healing, deliverance, protection. That is true. That is the kingdom of God breaking into the world right now. But that's a different sermon. This sermon is costly discipleship. (laughs) The blessing of God is his word of love spoken over us, and it sounds like this. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. It could also sound like this. This is my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. It is God's pleasure spilling over us. And while no doubt it gives God pleasure to see us, his children, in good health and enjoying the beauty of his creation, what gives God greatest pleasure is seeing us, his children, growing into the mature, loving beings that we are made to be. The true blessing God promises his children is that we will eventually be very much like Jesus, while still being very much like ourselves. There's a scripture from Romans that says, and we know that in all things, God works for good of those who love him, 
who have been called according to his purpose. But what is the good that Paul is talking about that we can expect? Well, in verse 29, he says the purpose is to be conformed to the likeness of his son. The good that Paul specifies is our eventual inside and out, beautiful, loving goodness. Jesus says that following him is potentially very costly. But here is the thing. There is no road to joy other than this exact path of daring. Jesus is saying to his followers, to you and to me, if you want to follow me, it will be a high-stakes adventure. I'll be right with you. There will be steep and difficult ascents. And your stuff, it probably won't make it through intact. But you will be doing the most important work of your life. You'll be doing it with me and some of my friends and my Heavenly Father. Think about it.